So we have a number of important existential issues that we could address and think about. One of them is, what's the meaning of life? Which we're not going to look at today. I don't, I don't think it's very interesting. What do we do with this life? That gets more interesting. But the question that I'd like to uh, introduce is, what motivates your life? What motivates what you do? Where does your motivation come from? What animates you, the source? The Buddha talked about practicing in accordance to the Dharma, in accordance with the Dharma. That's how it's translated for us by Bhikkhu Bodhi. But the uh, word that he translates as a practice could just as well mean how do, how do we act in accordance with the Dharma? How do we live our life in accordance with the Dharma? The word Dharma has many meanings. The one I'd like to suggest for the purpose of this talk is um, one of the meanings is nature. It could also mean truth. But that's nature. So practice in accordance with nature. And if you, if you follow this, then the way the Buddha teaches the practice is to nurture nature. Not set up the two in opposition to each other, but that what we do is we nurture our nature. We nurture the Dhamma, the the nature that's here, that we're part of. And if we think of ourselves as nature, then where does that arise in us? Where does that live in us? Where do we find that in us? There are other motivations that we can have and other ways of seeing who we are. And uh, what's interesting, and I'll try to be simple with this, and you're willing to go along, just believe me. <clears throat> this whole teaching that some of you know about called the five aggregates, there are five ways in which we are not living according to nature. It's five ways in which we manufacture we, uh, an artifice. We are constructing something And that's the language of the Buddha, constructing five different areas or ways in which to cling to who we are. The aggregates do not describe who a person is. They describe this kind of artificial way in which we override nature to make something up. And for the Buddha, the idea is to stop making that up. Stop constructing, start making... Stop the artifice and, and connect to nature and nurture that, support it. And why this is so important, I think, for people doing this practice is that this is not exactly the heroic, what's well, heroic to be here this weekend, this week, but it's not exactly, you know, this heroic kind of uh, quest, you know, to enlightenment or bust and pushing and striving and, you know, you know, get there, this place. But over and over again, you see the way the Buddha talks about practice. He uses language like nurture, 
nourishment, to nourish it, to cultivate it, to allow it to grow. He uses the word grow, growth in the Dharma. These are all kind of verbs or activities that are related to the natural world. Not to the world of factories that manufacture things. And so, as we practice, we practice differently if we nurture something than if we strive for something. We practice different if we're trying to attain something versus trying to allow something to grow into fulfillment, to mature, ripen. The language of enlightenment is um, um, something comes to fruition. Uh, there's attaining the fruit. Here we have this, these, these words from nature to describe what this practice is. We nourish it, we cultivate it, and sometimes at some point there grows something that's a fruit. And um, when an apple grows on an apple tree, you don't go when it's just a teeny little green apple pulling on the apple, to see, pulling it off to see if it's ripe yet. You, you leave it there, and the ideal way of taking an apple off an apple tree is you come with your palm of your hand under the apple and you gently lift it up a little bit. You don't, you don't pull it off the, by the stem. You just lift it a little bit up and away. And if it's really ripe, it just comes right off. It's ripe. So when you're fully ripe, it's just a little kind of hold something and support it. And something deep inside will let go. And you attain the fruit. It's a beautiful simile, I think. So what's happening here is the Buddha is making a differentiation. This has been one of my themes in New Zealand. That uh, he's constantly differentiating. And in fact, this is such an important phenomena in our school of Buddhism that before our school of Buddhism was called Theravada, the way of the elders, it was called the Vibhajayanavadas, the ones who make distinctions the differentiators. What's your religion? I'm a differentiator. <laughs> it's not going to go over too well. But uh, it does highlight that this seeing distinctions is actually quite important. And so here we have a distinction between what's manufactured and what is allowed to grow in its natural way. In English uh, psychology, we have uh, sometimes a distinction between, on one hand, um, uh, fight, flight, and freeze when we're challenged. And then on the other hand, I don't have three for you, maybe some of you know, but uh, we have uh, approach and soothe. Approach and soothe. Approach, soothe, and nurture. Approach, soothe, and love. Approach, soothe, and tend the garden. Care for something. The kid who's a little kid who's upset, you approach them, you soothe them, and then you tend them, what needs to happen. So these are two very different ways of responding to the world. 
And perhaps these two different ways can be understood as one involves a survival mechanism. It's important to survive and exist. Of course we want to. Versus um, the, um, uh, this other, that's not fight or flight, that's not survival, but rather, and I'll use a choice word today, and I'll explain why, it's gestational. Again, here we're having this kind of this growing, something like an embryo gestates. The first paper I ever wrote for school, in like middle school or something, was the gestation periods for elephants. (laughs) That was a big word for me when I was a little kid. So, but just gestational. And, um, And of course we want to survive, but survival involves tension and straining. It's a different place. We respond from a different place inside of us when we're trying to survive. You know, this fight or flight, you know, the muscles are activated. It really uses the muscles and we're activated strong. Freeze, I think, also is kind of an activation of the muscles, which they freeze, they deactivate. The, where does nurture, tend, love, soothe, arise inside of us. And I, you know, maybe it's in our muscles, but it doesn't feel like it involves tightening up the muscles. It doesn't involve clamping down, uh, getting tense. It has a flow to it. It's, it's soothing. It's, there's a, a, a gen, kind of like, it has no particular place, but there's a suffusion of warmth, suffusion of friendliness or kindness or care a gentleness, a sweetness to it. Where does sweetness live in you? You can't exactly put your finger on it, but you know if you're really angry or someone and you feel your stomach in knots, that's, that's where you can, you can point to your stomach. Or if you're really afraid and your shoulders are up in your ears, you know, that's, you know, the muscles are activated. So survival often involves the activation of muscles. Love is something different. So I like to think in my simplistic Gill pop psychology that um, this uh, activated part is more the surface of who we are. It's surface responses. And a lot of the behavior in life belongs to this surface re- reactivity and responsivity that is related to our capacity to survive, but it's also used for things that have nothing to do with survival. It gets mis- misapplied or misused in different ways. And so uh, it gets used for the pursuit of comfort. It gets used for the pursuit of pleasure, uh, physical pleasure, sensual pleasure. It gets used at the, you know, uh, to uh, avoid what we don't like and what we don't want to be around. And so, but it's kind of surface responses. So when we're reactive to something, we don't like it and we're angry, that's kind of the surface of uh, the survival mechanism, the surface that can respond from some place that's kind of reactive and sometimes an automatic pilot. If we live our life tense, then that's the tension in us is what gets touched by the world. 
So, of course, we're going to respond reactively. When we can stop being so tense and relax and start discovering this wellspring inside of this gestational energy, then we have the opportunity to respond to the world from a very different place. And Dharma practice is guiding us, supporting us to learn to love it all, learn to be caring and approach and soothe our fears, our angers, our greed, our delusions, everything. Practice according to the Dharma means approach everything from this from this place of nature, this place of caring and tending. And um, <clears throat> so the, the reason I use the word gestational is that the, uh, the, in the bu- bu- teachings of the Buddha, he has this expression called yoniso manisikara. It's a very important term, or, or two words. And... Um, he talks about uh, people when they get, are mature in practice, that this, this uh, yoni so manisikara is phenomenally important for the source from which they practice. This question of what motivates you? Where's the motivation f- for you coming from? So the word yoni so means that which belongs to the womb that which belongs to the womb. And manisikara, uh, it's not clear how it should be translated. It has something to do with the activity of the mind, what the mind kind of makes. But coming out of the womb, the usual uh, way that, uh, one way that people have translated is attention. And so I, I like to call it gestational attention. Because the kind of attention that allows something to grow, unfold, gives birth to something. Um, it's nurturing, it's uh, supporting, it's allowing something to develop. And so what kind of attention do you have that's gestational, that's like a womb, that creates a womb-like environment for something to incubate, something to grow, something to sprout? If you give just gestational effort to your practice, what wants to be born is, I think, one of the great existential questions. What wants to be born? And what's nice about that question for me is that it's not, it's not asking the question, you know, what's the meaning of my life? What should I do? What's the purpose of my life or something? It's asking, it's almost putting that aside, me, myself, and mine, in favor for what wants to be born. If I get out of the way with this gestational attention, what wants to come? So we have human life and activity is important. It's to be respected and cared for and valued. And But the, the things we do... Can, you know, we're going down the path of life and in this, this differenti- differentiating school that we're in, we distinguish between always, it's always two forks in the road. And the simple way that the tradition talks about it, it's between that which is wholesome and unwholesome. 
Sometimes that those word kusala and akusala is translated as skillful and unskillful. But I like the word wholesome because the idea of the whole is so meaningful for me. The idea that you want to include the whole. All of it's included. The When we define ourselves tightly, we tend to divide ourselves. And that's the problem with these five aggregates that some of you know about. The problem is that they divide us in ways that lose the whole. Rather than dividing ourselves, the, the differenti- differentiating the Buddha is talking about moves us back into the whole, away from the div- divided self. So, we have one of the things that we have is we have desires. Action comes from desires. Desires is a very important part of human life. I kind of simplistically like to say something like, if we don't have any desires, you're probably depressed. And that's important to say because a simplistic understanding of Buddhism is that desires is the cause of suffering. Let go of all your desires. You're not supposed to have any desires at all. That's not true. It's not what the Buddha said. In fact, the Buddha was a champion of desires. The Buddha wanted us to have desires. He wanted us to be really motivated and have strong desires for liberation, for entering into this path of practice. That's a natural path. Not enlightenment or bust, but rather... um, Bring something, incubate something. Bring it forth, allow it to grow, tend it, support it, nurture it. But a strong desire for it. And, um, but the, the fact that humans can have desire also means they can take an unwholesome direction. And that's where we have the first of the five hindrances, which is part of the theme of this week. The first of the five hindrances is usually uh, described as sensual desire. And uh, so this is, as soon as we're talking about the senses, at least in the Buddhist scheme of things, we're talking about the surface. The surface pleasures. When the surface sense endings get stimulated. So getting a massage you know, the skin is, is touched. Eating good food, the surface of the tongue, perhaps. Um, you know, smelling beautiful blossoms, the nose, hearing beautiful music. Sometimes beautiful ideas and stuff can bring a lot of pleasure to the mind. And that pleasure can be innocent and wonderful, but it could also be very limiting because if it's, that's all we're doing, it's, we're staying, it's too easy to stay at the surface. And some people will go from one pleasure to the other and be alienated from themselves. They don't really know themselves. They're just chasing pleasure and desires. And so, <clears throat> and so this chasing sensual desires is called a hindrance, or more technically in the Buddhist language, it's a covering. It covers over wisdom. It covers over clarity it covers over wholeness. 
the wholeness of who we are. It's like you're trying to nurture a young seedling to grow and you leave it in the dark. It doesn't grow healthy then. So you put a cover over it and it doesn't grow well. So this covering that gets in the way of the, uh, of the gestational growth of what's possible inside of us. So of course the Buddhists are interested in overcoming sensual desire. Not because sensual desire is wrong, but there's a way of pursuing it as a surface phenomena that keeps us alienated, keeps us limited, that actually interferes with the growth of something really beautiful and important. Part of the reason why we call the first, the first uh, hindrance sensual desire is that's how it's described in the famous teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness. Turns out the Buddha more often lists a separate thing as the first hindrance, not sensual desire. And it's acquisitiveness. And I kind of, it's important to remember this other meaning, or the uh, other word for the first hindrance, because it's, the desires which can be problematic are not just sensual desire. There's a kind of acquisitiveness, maybe part of the survival mechanisms. You know, get, just get a lot of things. You'll be safe if you can get a lot, a lot of stuff. You know, the, you know, the more Rolls Royces you could own, the safer you'll be, I'm sure. And, um, but, uh, you know, to this acquisitiveness, wanting what other people have, wanting somehow to be better than them or be jealous of what other people have and try to get envy them and want it, want it for yourself and comparing ourselves to others with what they have, whether it's material things or, or status or success or all kinds of things. This also is a preoccupation of the human mind that belongs to this, for the, this constructed, manufactured, artifice place that the mind can make up that also covers over. And it can be rampant that people get caught in this world of manufacturing these desires that they want and want and want. Many years ago, I was hitchhiking in Denmark when I was a young, my early, early 20s and trying to find my way in life and figure something out. And this guy picked me up and he asked me, you know, what are you interested in? And I started listing all the things that I wanted to do. Buddhism, Sufism, Aikido, you know, rolfing, gestalt therapy. And I had a long, long list of things I wanted to do. And at some point he just turned to me and said, boy, you have a lot of desires. <laughs> that was a little bit of a wake-up call to him, say, for that person to say that. So, um, surface desires. We shortchange ourselves in that way. The instinct, the hormones for sensual desire and the survival instinct is so strong, it, it, it cannot feel like it's superficial. It, feels like it, it can feel like it's essential. And, you know, if any of you have had any issues around addiction, you can know how intense it can compel. It has to be now. It needs to be. No choice. And sometimes we need to be heroic in this practice, not to acquire something 
but to avoid something. Heroic and not giving in to these kind of surface instincts, surface kind of manufactured kind of ideas that just keep us divided, keep us unsettled, leave us alienated, leave us kind of feeling discomforted inside. If we become a stranger to ourselves, it becomes uncomfortable to be with ourselves. And if it's uncomfortable to be with ourselves, what should we do? I had a wheat allergy for a while, for about seven years, before wheat allergies were popular. I didn't even know what it was. You know, I, didn't know what, I didn't know what I was doing. But um, I worked at a bakery. And I love baguettes. And so when I was feeling kind of off, baguettes were my comfort food. So I'd eat some baguette, and because I was alert, I'd gotten, become allergic, I felt bad. And because I felt bad, and not knowing why, I had more baguettes. <laughs> I felt worse, I had more baguettes. And there were some days where it, I was a basket case. My mind went kind of literally numb. I couldn't think or do anything. So this, you know, mis, uh, maladaptive way of desire and filling what we need and getting it, thinking we're doing the right thing, often is not. So as we sit to meditate, and we're for 45 minutes maybe, we're not going to comfort ourselves. We're not going after essential desire. We're not pursuing wealth and success and status. We're just sitting. And not giving into these things, but to practice according to the Dharma is to practice in a way that allows us to meet this, meet these malfunctioning activities that we might have with kindness. Meet it with, approach it, nurture it, tend it. Because perhaps in doing that, in it, in, maybe inside of it is the seed that needs to sprout. Something maybe is there to be born. If we're dismissing everything all the time, just letting go and saying this is bad and wrong, and um, then uh, you know we might actually be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But to approach, to avoid giving in, but to be present for, to care, to support, to be really see what's here. To stop long enough to really take a good look, deep look. To stop long enough to hold it kindly and see what wants, what wants to germinate, what wants to grow. What, out, of, you know, out of the ashes, there's a phoenix, out of, which is the name of my cabin. So the, um, um, So on one hand, we have sensual desires, acquisitiveness, the maladaptive or unhelpful, unhealthy desires. And then we start learning what is a healthy desire? What's a wholesome desire? What's a whole making desire? What is it that, what's the desire 
that does, doesn't seem to be manufactured, is not addictive, is not self-centered, doesn't come from a contraction, doesn't come from the muscles tightening up, doesn't involve a, cond- a condensation or a squeezing of our animated life force, what animates us, but rather is an opening and a suffusing a making room for a filling out of this sweetness or this love or this care or this kindness or this tenderness. The movement of this dharma energy or dharma nurturing that we have, dharma nature, is one of uh, that uh, would be expressed by opening your arms wide here. I'm here with this, here, and letting it come. Making room for things here. It's not like going tight in and, and holding yourself and pulling away and tightening up into a ball, but this movement of here. And internally, this movement of here, opening up, and see what wants to flow. See what kind of space you can create for yourself. What happens if you make room? Mindfulness is a practice of room making. Making room for everything. Expanding the room. A room that can hold it all. One of the definitions of Dharma practice is increasing our capacity to hold life. We're growing our capacity to hold it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Imagine if you can hold it all for yourself. That's maturation. That's becoming a mature person. You can hold it. Even if you don't know what to do, you can still be present. So then, the desire to have this be there, be present now for this experience, the desire to be, be, be attending to the world, attending to yourself, the desire to approach and care for what's here, the desire to allow what's this miracle of life that we're given to allow, allow what is it that it wants to be born here? What is it wants to come out of it? It's a very narrow kind of life to think that your control tower knows exactly what you're supposed to be about, what your life is supposed to be. That's not where the answers come from, the control tower of thoughts and engineering your life.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.